The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, June 23rd, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There is a new series available on Amazon streaming. Yes, I know. Today was the newsiest day in the world, but I have to get to this. This new series, well, it's old, but it's new. It's Sigmund and the Sea Monsters. It's back, this time starring David Arquette, still featuring live actors in costumes designed by the show's creators, Sid and Marty Croft. If you do not know or remember Sid and Marty Croft, you either avoided the 70s, Sigmund ran from 73 to 75, or were downing copious amounts of acid as you watched the offerings of Sid and Marty Croft. Now, let me say this about Sigmund and the Sea Monsters. Sigmund and the Sea Monsters is a show from my youth. It is a show that reminds me of childhood, that evokes nostalgia, that puts me in a mental place of when I was a boy. It was also terrible and never needs to exist again. Yes, there's a fair amount of nostalgia surrounding it in my head. Yes, it reminds me of a simpler time. And yes, I no longer live in that simpler time. And because of that, I cannot judge it to be of poor artistic and storytelling quality and not in need of a remake or a reimagining or a reboot, a reboot anywhere other than wherever the hell sea monsters discharge their waste from. Take note, millennials, R.E. Full House. Take note, Gen X and 90210. Take note, baby boomers with the Clinton administration. I say this now. I say that the Patty Duke show was terrible. Identical cousins. Gilligan's Island was terrible. Popeye cartoons were terrible. Beverly Hills 90210 was terrible. Dragon Ball Z, pointless. Smosh Brothers, worthless. So that covers you or your teenage younger brother or your dad or every generation I could think of. All these shows evoke warm feelings of wood paneled living rooms or shag carpets or beanbag chairs or brushed comb Ikea tables or whatever the hell decorated the interior of your den rec room or great room. Childhood was fun because you played outside and because you didn't worry about your FICO score and because you ate Halloween candy well into November. It wasn't fun because of anything that Sid or Marty Croft did or ABC TGI Friday or Aaron Spelling. Let me now welcome you inside the mind of Marty Croft talking about the inspiration for Sigmund. I mean, wouldn't it be, be a great concept for two kids to hide out a sea monster? I immediately gave him a name, you know, Sigmund. So Marty's some sort of wilted flower child. And there during this whole interview, it's like a series of 14 interviews I found on YouTube. There's Sid sitting next to him. It's a career retrospective. And Sid is just rolling his eyes. He's desperate to interrupt Marty. What a goofball. You can tell Sid is thinking the whole time. Both of these guys, we should acknowledge, they are adept at constructing puppets. I want to give them their due. Those guys can make a puppet, a horrifying, lumpy puppet. But yes, they were puppets. If Jim Henson was Mozart, these guys were, no, not even Salieri, more like Falco. They were the Fanta root beer to Jim Henson's Dom Perignon. But you know what? They think they were geniuses. They have a self-conception that says, don't you tell Sid and Marty Croft how to do things. The interference factor then was minuscule compared to the interference factor today. It's just different today. You got everybody that never made a show in their lives telling you how to make one. Then you had practice and standards telling you don't touch witchy poo, 
you can't have stupid bad touching witchy brew. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a violence, you know. So that we could live with. That that wasn't all that bad. You're telling Sid and Marty Croft what to do. We invented puffin stuff. A traveler to a strange land who confronts a witch and goes on a quest to return home with the help of magical beings. That's totally original. And if this is anyone but the estate of L. Frank Baum, you're dead to me. On the show today, the most newsy newsday in weeks. How to think about all the stuff that happened. One unifying theory. But first, well, so long as it's 70s nostalgia day. And oh yeah, Stairway to Heaven was written by Led Zeppelin. Court said that today. Fits in with 70s nostalgia day. So I will give you a cultural fixture who actually brought me joy during the 70s and later. He was an actor on Benson. I loved Benson. He was in the MASH movie. Man, I love that movie. He was on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Didn't watch it. Heard it was good. Rene Aubergenois is in a new film. We talk about all that after this. The blood stripe is the piping of a Marine's uniform pants. It is also the title of a film that never explains the literal definition, but evokes it. In it, a soldier, a Marine actually, returns from war, cracks up a bit upon reentry, and finds work and meaning in a camp, a camp that she spent her childhood at years ago. The movie was written and directed by Remy Aubergenois, and his father, Rene Aubergenois, is an actor that I know you know from the governor's chief of staff on Benson to Deep Space Nine to so many voice works. He is he plays a minister in this kind of sensitive and exquisitely observed film. Hello. Hello, Rene. Welcome. Hi there. How are you? I'm well. Is it your son's first feature film? Yes, it is. Yeah. And aside from saying, lend me your, uh, lend me a role, lend me your star chops, did you collaborate with him on it? Did you talk about it at least a little bit as he was coming up with the idea? You know, when they um, first uh, told me that they were going to make a film, I said, well, what's my part going to be? <laughs> and I was, I, I was really just joking. And they sort of looked a little bit uncomfortable and they said, my my son said, well, Dad, you know, it's really about people up in the north woods of Minnesota, and they're, they're sort of real simple people in the Iron Range up there on the border of Canada, and I don't know, you kind of play more refined people generally. And I said, no, no, it's okay, I'm just joking. But eventually they actually, once they developed the script, they created a role that they felt that I would be right for. And that would be the extent of my collaboration, only in the sense that I said, what's my part? When you say they, it's your son, Remy, and Kate Nolan, who plays the lead, and that, and she's also a co-writer, and she's your daughter-in-law. Yeah. And my son likes to say that he got a package deal because his wife <laughs> is the star, his father plays a supporting role, and um, his daughter, my granddaughter, plays um, a little girl in this wonderfully mystical, enigmatic, gripping story, uh, plays a little girl who, um, it's never really explained, but might actually be the central character when she was a little girl in that camp. 
Yes, now that you mention it, she's young and has red hair, just like the main actress. And even though there are conversations around her, as you mentioned it, as I think back, she never she never actually is acknowledged by another character, is she? It's almost it could that's be right. sixth sensey, yeah. That's right. She could be in in the imagination of the sergeant. The central character is never actually named the part that Kate Nowlin plays so brilliantly is uh, referred to as our sergeant. She is a returning Marine officer from uh, several tours in Afghanistan. She is what the Marines term uh, a lioness. It's a film which doesn't say a lot, but says everything that you need to know about the conflict and the the difficulty of coming home. Yes, and I sense that it was it would be okay if the filmmakers, if you were to say, well, it was only an implicit anti-war message, or um, you didn't even get into the politics of anything, because to me it's a character study, and the circumstances of this character, you know, she was broken by war. And therefore, take what you will from that. But really, we're just concentrating on one aspect of the human condition. And it's the humanity that we're focusing on, not, you know, the politics or anything else behind that. Absolutely. They, they, they were very um, intent on staying away from any kind of political message or anti-war message. Um, it's really a character study. And it's a study not only of one one person's struggle and journey, but it's how that one person's re-entry into society, how it affects her family, the community that she re-enters or tries to re-enter. And it's a, you know, it's a psychological drama in the sense that a lot of things happen that you're not sure whether they're in her imagination or whether they are actually happening. And I think that's the fascinating thing about the film. And it's also one of those movies that is powerful about the circumstance of war without actually showing a scene of battle. There are scenes of battle alluded to when she's running, but I'm thinking of, you know, some other great anti-war movies that don't focus on battle. And you got to think of Born on the Fourth of July. There are some battle scenes in that. You have to think of Catch-22. And of course, you have to think of Altman's MASH, and you played Father Mulcahy in MASH, and I'm sure that at times on the set, or thinking about it, that must have been a connection that you considered. I I love it that you said that, because actually, I was a very young man when I played, when I did MASH, and I looked at this character, the minister, and I thought, well, you know, if the character Father Mulcahy had left the army and started his ministry, he might very well have turned into the character that I'm playing now as a much older person. And that's what I feel I brought to the character, which is a kind of a lightness and a kind of a sweetness and a humorous quality. Yes, if I could describe the similarities between the two characters, Father Mulcahy and the minister in this movie, unlike the Father Mulcahy that evolved during the television series played by, was that actor William Christopher? Bill Christopher, yeah, yeah, wonderful actor. Okay, so your Father Mulcahy was intelligent without guile, 
Father, your father Mulcahy seemed like more of a straightforward guy, and that's embodied in that great line where uh, Hot Lips is wondering how a degenerate could have reached a high position of responsibility in the army, <laughs> and Mulcahy says... Uh, he was drafted. I wonder how a degenerated person like that could have reached a position of responsibility in the Army Medical Corps. He was drafted. I actually made that line up. Oh, when no. We were wow. rehearsing, when we were rehearsing the scene. And it became a kind of an iconic line for the whole film, but it also represented the kind of um, simple innocence that that character represented. And, uh, yeah. There you go. Innocence is a good word because I was thinking about what MASH meant. It, it, the movie came out, I think, in 1970. I wasn't even born yet, but I remember the TV show. And I, I haven't ever read the book it was based on, and they probably meant all different things. But it was from right. a time when most people would identify with the military service. I mean, people were drafted. And so many, I would say your average adult male had spent a stint in the service. And there wasn't this distancing, okay? So that may, means a couple things. It means that back Back then, you could poke fun of the military and not be called like some sort of traitor to your country. But it also means that when you came back, there was an identification with other people in society that they had maybe been through that before. And the current members of the military do not have this. I mean, there's a great benefit to the all-volunteer military, but this is one of the consequences. And I think we see that in Bloodstripe. Absolutely. Right on. And the central character in Bloodstripe being a woman which is a whole new twist. Yes. So we earlier talked about how the politics aren't forefronted here. And one, I was going to say the TV show that you're best known for, but that's probably not true. I'm sure you have more uh, Star Trek fans than Benson fans. But the one that I know you from, Benson, it made pains not to divulge whether the governor was a Democrat or a Republican or even what state he was in. I understand, especially back then in the 70s and 80s, it was broadcasting. You didn't want to alienate any part of the audience. But was there any uh, move to acknowledge more of the reality of politics or did everyone agree that this was the safest and funniest place f to position the show? Benson was a family show. It was uh, 8 o'clock on Friday nights, and politics really had nothing to do with it. It was a family show, and it was, in a sense, about a family, about the governor and his daughter, and then all the people who worked in the governor's mansion. Marcy, I thought you'd be at your desk. She tunneled out when you weren't looking. <laughs> Speaking of desks, Benson, I've been meaning to talk to you about yours. Oh, do you like it? Mm. Obviously, you didn't get my memo on neatness. I got it. I just can't find it. Put out a memo regarding the disregarding of memos. Now see what you did. Now, I don't like to pull rank, Benson, but I am the chief of staff, and I would hope to see this desk in order by five o'clock. And you better get started on this. <laughs> Did you enjoy Benson, and did it help your career, or was there a typecasting problem afterwards? By the time Benson was offered to me, we had been doing the typical New York, Los Angeles, back and forth and back and forth. I, I would do a play in New York, then I'd come out and do a television guest starring role, go back to New York and do a play, come back to California and do a movie or something. Eventually, we had to stop doing that because the kids really were at an age where they had to 
settle down and be in a school. And Benson came along at exactly the right time. And I was with it for six years. And um, when it was over, as happens with all uh, long-running TV shows, there is a period of time where you are basically, well, I guess typecast is the word, where people think of you as, oh, yeah, he played Clayton Endicott III, that nitwit chief of staff to the governor, the butt of a lot of jokes. On the contrary, Benson, the Endicott family is quite proud of this nose. Oh, really? The whole family? What do you do, pass it around or stand under it for shade? And there was a period of time where, in television, that's the way I was considered. So I focused on Broadway musicals and movies and didn't really worry about doing another television show until Star Trek came along, which was a completely different kind of character. Suddenly I was playing an alien from some place out there in the universe, um, and uh, he was the chief of security on a space station out there. But it is true that television, especially a long-running show, can get you fixed in people's minds as that character. And it takes a while to sort of let that sort of calm down and then hopefully get a chance to create another very different kind of character. As Odo in Star Trek, was it annoying to wear that much makeup or did you feel you couldn't complain that much because there were other guys on the set like Worf and Quark who had 10 times as much as you did? Well... Okay. (laughs) I'll tell you what. That makeup was the most uncomfortable of all the other makeups. I know that seems counterintuitive, that Quark and Worf had big lumpy things, but, you know, when you have a makeup that has a lot of nooks and crannies and bumps and things, it's easy to hide where it joins the face. Mine was a complete latex mask that I wore usually for 14 hours a day, sometimes more than that. People always want to know how long the makeup took. It took two and a half hours, which by Star Trek standards is not very long. You know, before I started that show, I was doing a film and Roddy McDowell was in it and we were having lunch one day and I knew I was going to be doing a show which had a very heavy prosthetic makeup and I said Roddy you know when you did Planet of the Apes how did you deal with the hours and hours that you were in makeup and then the hours that you had to wear it how did you deal with that and he paused for a second and he said I thought about the money (laughs) (laughs) and and I you know what I never forgot that Um, that's right you know they are paying me for this yes (laughs) (laughs) whenever I would like begin to feel sorry for myself because I couldn't eat solid food while I was in the makeup because it would break the corners of the mouth and, uh, you know, that I had to be so careful about it. Whenever that, whenever I was feeling sorry for myself, I would bring that back to mind. Rene Aubergenois is in the new film Bloodstripe. It was written and directed by his son, Remy. It stars and was written by his daughter-in-law, And it is about a Marine's return to America after the war. Thank you. That was a pleasure. Thank you.
Immigration, affirmative action, rough ride, sit in, German shooting and Brexit. It's the spiel. Yeah, I said Brexit. 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 Easy go. Whether to stay in. Easy go. Or go. It isn't over. Brexit. Yeah, this was the news day we've all been promised since we were young. This is the news day when I said, it's all coming to a head and damn it, I'm glad God gave me a podcast slash radio show so I can lead team coverage by apparently talking about Sigmund and the Sea Monsters. But I was trying to find a unified theory for all the news today. At first, I was thinking about Brexit. 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 Easy go. Whether to stay in. Easy go. Or go. Stop it. Stop it. There's no time. I had this thought. I want Brexit to fail, but a part of me wants it to pass so that almost immediately all the people who voted for it can say, ooh, that was a bad idea. Its negative effects will be immediate, markets will tumble, growth will slow. It will be apparent. So much policy is. Sometimes I think the role of political parties is to ensure the other party's existence by keeping the other party's terrible ideas in the realm of only ideas. Remember privatizing Social Security? The Democrats opposed it. The Republicans were for it. The Democrats won. But what if the Republicans had won? It was a terrible idea. If the Bush administration had gotten its way, so much Social Security wealth would have been wiped out by the Great Recession. It would have been a disaster. But that idea, it still gets brought up. It's still personal severe because it never became actual policy. It was only an idea. Sometimes the only way for us to work through terrible ideas is actually to implement the ideas. Like communism. We know communism's a failure because it failed. It actually failed in the real world. But we can't prove that Randian objectivism would fail because it's never been implemented. Because there are enough smart people to stop it from being implemented that a bunch of I'm not going to say unsmart, but impassioned idealists can never know that in the real world it would fail. But that is not, none of this is the unifying theory of all the news today, June 23rd. So I got the idea. I was thinking about this the other day when I was listening to my favorite podcast. Do you know what my favorite podcast is? It's not revisionist history or hot takedown or political or culture gap fest or invisibilia, WTF, surprisingly awesome, Colin McEnroe, Brian Lair, Fresh Air, Trump cast, 538 elections, Axe Files, or the FP Editor's Roundtable, though I love all those podcasts. My favorite podcast these days is Effectively Wild from Baseball Prospectus. And they were talking about the great Dodger announcer, Vin Scully. They were listing components of his greatness. And Sam Miller, the host of that show, brought up the idea of objectivity. Here he is quoting from a Sports Illustrated article from years ago. In 1958, some of the Dodger officials thought that Scully might be wise to adopt an all-out pro-Dodger tone over the air. Scully spent weeks pondering the suggestion and finally came to the conclusion that he would be better off following the style he was used to, that is, to be as objective and factual as possible. Quote, it turned out to be one of the luckiest things that ever happened to me, he said recently. When Los Angeles had minor league baseball, the games were broadcast on a partisan basis. The announcer rooted for the teams. But when Major League Baseball came to L.A. and Jerry Doggett and I did the game straight without rooting, it had a very favorable impact. It was as if the city, without knowing it, had been waiting for this kind of announcing. People were seeing Major League Baseball for the first time. It was different, and they liked it. When they heard us, they assumed that this was the way Major League games were broadcast, and they liked that, too. I think they appreciated the compliment. That, when they want, that what they wanted was a factual report and they didn't have to be told how to root. 
It seemed right to me. In fact, it seemed more than right. It seemed essential. I hate announcers who are what we call homers. I hate even the implication of, oh, this is such a shame for us. I hate Hawk Harrelson who pulls that with the White Sox and gets in the way of just announcing a baseball game I'd normally be interested in. I actually have a weird pride that the Mets announcers clearly like the Mets, but are announcing a game in the mode of reporting, whereas the Yankees radio announcers are clearly on the payroll of the Steinbrenner family and are announcing their game in the mode of carnival barking. So how does this all apply to news? How does this apply to me? I am a purveyor of opinion more than reportage. I am an arguer. I will tell you. Yesterday, the House Democrats staged a sit-in over guns. C-SPAN, before its cameras were shut down by the House, aired Rep. John Lewis announcing his intentions. We're calling on the leadership of the House to bring common-sense gun control legislation to the House floor. Give us a vote. Let us vote. We came here to do our job. We came here to work. So today we come to the well of the house to dramatize the need for action. And from there, CNN covered the sit-in, but then ducked away for a libertarian town hall or something. MSNBC generally cheered the sit-in on, and Fox News generally ignored the sit-in. Though their morning show did feature this interview with Republican Representative Louis Gohmert, seen for a while on the House floor, screaming at his Democratic colleagues, Here's the conversation between Fox and Gomer. Congressman Lewis was on the no-fly list, erroneously, by the way. Well, and so was Martin Luther King Jr. back when uh, it, he was alive. I mean- no, Martin Luther King, killed in 1968, did not quite make it to the no-fly list enacted by Congress after the terrorist acts of September 11th, 2001. I was unsatisfied. Even beyond this, I was unsatisfied with most of the coverage. While MSNBC did its best to bring on experts like Norm Ornstein to tell you how Congress works, he explained the politics, huge chunks of coverage would go by without a contemplation of what this means for the process. You can tell that they were presenting this act as if it were a brave but quixotic attempt to claim a moral high ground in the face of opposition and intransigence. The problem for me, though, is that if you change the name John Lewis to Ted Cruz, We will all pause a moment to shudder. Fine. And if you change gun laws to, quote unquote, Obamacare, how's this much different from that? In fact, the Senate has rules baked into their procedures that allow for a lot more obstructionism than the House. An argument can be made that the sit-in isn't going to do anything tangible about guns, but also might blow up any vestige of order and comity within Washington. Yeah, I know you're saying it's already gone. Who cares? We're past that point anyway. That's fine. Let me have that argument. I yearn for more of that argument. I guess I'll just have to wait for 12 of those 15 podcasts that I listed to get into that argument. A clearer picture will emerge, but in the moment, I wanted a little more objectivity, a little more, here's the whole scope of the game that's going on. And by objectivity, I don't mean phony balance. I mean exploring all sides to the issues, telling it as if to a person who doesn't have a vested interest but would really like to know as much as that person can. Take the trial of Baltimore police officer Caesar Goodson in the death of Freddie Gray. He was found not guilty on all the serious counts. You know, a takeaway, I think the general news consensus is what went on in Baltimore is troubling. It's an injustice. The community was aggrieved. And yet, if you look at the law, this was a foreseeable verdict. And not only foreseeable in the sense that injustice is baked into the system, but foreseeable in the sense that I don't know that the prosecution proved their case. Has that been how it's been covered? 
affirmative action. Supreme Court decided that Texas could use it today. That's a shorthand of what happened. Well, take a look on Twitter under the hashtag Becky with the bad grades. Let me explain. There was a song Lemonade and the plaintiff in this case, Abigail Fisher, sued the University of Texas. Anyway, Abigail Fisher is an interesting character, I think. She seems to have held on to this college rejection for quite a while, but court cases take quite a while. She was, in a sense, in her sense, acting out of a deep-seated conviction. The process couldn't have all been easy for her. I mean, this is a person who's famous for two things. Famous for A, being rejected from the college she wanted to go to, and for B, being against affirmative action, which translates to a lot of people to privileged and to a lot of people within that group to racist. I wonder about her. I'd like to read a Curtis Sittenfeld novel with a main character based on her. I think this whole case is way more complicated than privileged protagonists got a smackdown. And so it was in this day where I contemplated the news beyond the news as presented. Let me read something to you about the media. The need to incessantly promote inevitably affects coverage itself. This at a time of widespread debate over television's performance and reporting the news. Anything resembling impartiality is extremely rare. That was from a 1971 Sports Illustrated on Vin Scully. I took out the words baseball and the club here and there, but the point is the same. And let's all remember the famous catchphrases. Fair and balanced. The most trusted name in news. Lean forward. Or let's think about Vin Scully's catchphrase. He did not have one because that would not be appropriate for announcing a baseball game. And that's it for today's show. But I want to tell you about a live show I'm doing called Tape Fest. It'll take place in Brooklyn at a club, a venue called Roulette. It's next Wednesday, June 29th. The show's at 7.30. Scott Carrier, Harry Enton, Brittany Luce of Sampler and Gimlet, Mona Chalabi, the data editor of The Guardian, Michael May from NPR, Michaela Bly of The Moth, Liana Fink, a New Yorker cartoonist, will be there, and so will I, presenting and festiving with tape. Mary Wilson is a friend when times get rough, in addition to being the GIST producer. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, can't do a little. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, can't do enough. The GIST, whatever happened to predictability, the milkman, the paperboy, evening TV. Oom peru de peru, do peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>